The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, the Jewish Passover Seder, the word Seder means their order of, of service, begins when a woman lights the candles in the home. In fact, the rabbis had long taught that the story of redemption cannot begin that night of Passover until the, the woman first brings the light. And so at that table, they tell the story of their exodus. They tell the exodus story that we've been looking at, and, and the story begins with key women. If you'll remember, there were the the midwives, there was Moses' mother, Jochebed, there was Moses' sister, Miriam, there was Pharaoh's daughter in the first part of this story. And at dinner, the, the woman of the home will say and, and pray in, in Hebrew, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which means, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. And they'll, they'll say this. They've been saying this for so many centuries. You have sanctified us. You've given us life. You've sustained us. And you've enabled us to reach this season with joy. There's, there's a, a joy. Passover is a, a joyous time. And there's a joy in God's word that comes when we focus on redemption. And then next in the, in the Seder, in the service, the Jewish family will read from Exodus 12. And you can turn there. We're going to be reading from there into Exodus 13 today, and the, the leader, usually the oldest male of the home, will pray and will pour the wine for all. They've done this since Bible times, and they recite Exodus 6, 6 through 7, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and they drink the, the first cup. And then a little bit later, I will redeem you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and they they drink another cup that's called the cup of redemption. It reminds them that they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then a little bit later, there's a cup of praise, but the, typically the youngest child who can read will then read this script. And again, this has been happening for many centuries. These, these questions the child will ask, why is this night different than all other nights? Why on this night do we only eat matzah, which is unleavened bread? Why do we only eat bitter herbs on this night? Why do we dip twice on this night? We don't do that at any other time. Why do we recline on this night rather than sitting up upright at tables? And again, the man of the house will tell the child the bitter herbs are to remind us of the bitter slavery that our forefathers suffered in Egypt. We dip twice, we dip in in the bitter and then in the sweet to remind ourselves how sweet freedom is. And we recline at table as free men, not as slaves, to remember the night that God made us free. And in this, the kids are engaged. They have parts that they're saying. The whole family's involved. The kids will sometimes go and search for symbols that dad hid for them to find all as a part of the symbolism of this. And the leader will thank God and he'll take one big piece of, of unleavened matzah. He will break it and then he will divide it and pass it out to all of those who are present to eat of it. And they sing 
hymns. They, they sing from the Psalms and at the end, and they've been doing this since Bible times. And the kids would ask, what does it mean? And, and this comes out of our text, Exodus 12, verse 26, if you'll look at it. When your, this is the Passover, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Now look at chapter 13, verse 8, when they're explaining eating the unleavened bread. Chapter 13, verse 8, you shall tell your son on that day... It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, notice that strong hand again, with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 14, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then verse 16, again, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets before your eyes or between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Three times he's emphasizing that we're to be saying to recalling and retelling this, how there's a, the Lord had a strong hand that he brought us out. We just sang a little bit ago, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. This is the, the hand that's being spoken of here. I've been, since I was a little kid, forgetful. I can forget things about my own Kids at home, I'll sometimes walk into another room and I don't remember what I was doing, why I was going there, or where I put something that I was trying to do something with. I ask about things that I should know or wasn't paying attention to, and I can tell you having a smartphone in my hand actually makes me not very smart at all. But my mom knew some of my deficits as a little boy before there were even labels for some of those things and I remember she would sometimes tie a string around my finger anyone else have your mom tie a string around your finger raise your finger if your mom tied a string around your finger okay maybe a few of us the idea was there was something I needed to remember and the kids would see this string tied around my finger as I would go to school and they would ask about it and that would remind me that I needed to do something or ideally I would see it and I would remember what I was supposed to do and, and sadly there were sometimes I came home that string was still on my finger and I had forgotten but the idea of, the, of this text here is Israel was to see as a sign or as a mark on the hand what he's talking about here, to remember what God had done for them. We need to recall and we need to retell. That's kind of the big picture here. We need to recall the things of the Lord. We need to retell the story of the Lord to others. And so look with me at chapter 13, verse 3, where Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. So the, the food that they were to eat at that time was to remind them. And, and some of us know a little bit about this. There are certain foods that we associate with certain times of the year. 
It's food that we don't eat at other times of the year. Or maybe there's food that you enjoyed as a kid that you don't regularly have, and then you have it or even you smell it, and it, it instantly takes you back. You, you remember, well, God knows his people's weakness. God knows his people's forgetfulness. And his strong hand delivers them, but also he wants to put something in their hand, very tangibly, these symbols, to see and to eat regularly so that they don't forget. He gives memory aids with with visual aids before the eyes to, to remember his mercy, that God has been merciful to me, to remember his mighty redemption sparing his people. And you'll notice there's some repetition in chapter 13 from what we've seen in chapter 12 because God knows we need repetition. We forget things that we know or should know. And without repetition, we we lose that recollection. We need to recall and we need to retell. And he gives us these visual aids. And in fact, this morning, that's one reason we are doing the Lord's table. He commanded us to do that. But specifically, there's visible and tangible physical elements that we're going to take in our hand and we're going to taste and see and be reminded of redemption. So our outline today, I want us to look at the Seder and the Savior. I think we have a slide just with these simple points. And then our redemption and our remembrance. But that word Seder is just the Hebrew word for order. This is the order of service for the Passover celebration. And Jews have followed this same Seder or ceremony for thousands of years, for nearly 35 centuries. And it's connected with the Savior. Even some of them just go through the rituals and don't meditate on it. We'll talk more about that in, in a bit. But in chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, we've, we've already studied unleavened bread and talked about what that means, so I won't repeat that here. But there's, in verse 8, something more to say about this day that they would eat it. Verse 8, you shall tell your son... On that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And this word for tell is the Hebrew word Haggadah. This is what they actually call their script that they read, the telling. And they have it written down to to tell and to to retell and, and to recall these things. And it's a memorial of salvation in their mouth, to to say and also to taste and to see that they were saved from being slaves. And this little piece of bread that they would hold in their hand at the Passover was to remind them of God's big saving hand. This is just a small token of God's big, mighty hand that brought us out. And you take the bread in your mouth, and, and you would also take the cup of salvation. That's what Psalm 116 talks about. And they would sing Psalm 116 as a part of this. They did this in Bible times, and still the Orthodox continue to do that. You take this visual bread and cup with an audible testimony of personal, individual salvation. Notice the end of verse 8. What the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Often there's the language of us in Scripture, but he wanted them to speak in this way, what God did for me when, when I came out. Is, is they're remembering, remember this day, he says in verse 3, in which you, and he's talking to all of them, you, plural, came out. But many of those people would die. 
in the wilderness and on the way. And verse 5 moves to a, a singular you. When you're entering the land of Canaan later, he's instructing individuals from a, a future generation. There, there's children who are still to come in Canaan who were to say, verse 8, so verses 3 through 4 are plural, you all Israel who will come out. Verse 5 through 10 is you individual as you come later. Were you there? They might have asked themselves, was I there when, when they came out by the Lord? Many of them later were not physically there, but they were to spiritually, verse 8 says, to say, the Lord did this for me when I came out. It's like looking back, what the Lord did for my forefathers was also for me. It's like I was there. And this is part of remembering in verse 3, I'm, I'm appropriating it by faith. I'm believing that that redemption in the past was for me, spiritually. It's not just a, I'm not just trusting what he did for others. I'm not just counting on having believing parents. Moses would later write in Deuteronomy 6, these things need to be on your heart and you need to talk about them when you not just when you sit at home, but when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, talk about this with people you live with and love. Our family used to be more consistent doing this around the table and in bedtimes. I've been trying more lately in, in the car when I'm driving around with different kids, but whatever it is, and I'm, I'm convicted I need to do this more, we need to be talking about the things of the Lord with those we love. And there's a word especially for parents here. We need to regularly put salvation before our children. Not just morals. Not just behaviorism. But put before their eyes and ears the gospel. The Lord did this for me when I came out of my old life. Let me tell you about His strong hand. How God has been merciful and strong and in my life. He saved me from slavery to sin. Was I there when they crucified my Lord? Spiritually, I can say my sin was there. I, I, I look to Him even now. And so spiritually, it's like I look back on my redemption and that was for me individually. Paul says the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we need to individually confess that as well as also recognize he's done so many things for us. There's a, a challenge here for us dads in particular for family devotions or discipleship or fatherly discussions of spiritual things. And I convicted afresh this week to be more consistent and, and to try to be more creative and crying out more to God for help. For my kids, we need a Savior. And that's what this Seder points to. And faithful Jews actually looked for him, even in this time. If you look at chapter 12, verse 42, <clears throat> it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord. So later generations of Israel on Passover night we're actually watching, looking for the Messiah, their Savior, to come on that night. And in the very end, the last two verses of, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible as we have it, they say that Elijah would come before Messiah. And so to this day, Jewish tradition, 
has an empty place at the table for Elijah to see if he will come. And a child, and this is kind of ceremonial or traditional, but they'll go and they'll actually look outside as a part of the service to see if he's come, if he's come to announce the coming of Messiah. And and some of them will still sing to this day, May he come quickly in our days with the Messiah, the Son of David. Many of the Orthodox, at least Jews, recite At this time, I believe with a perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though he may tarry, nevertheless, I will wait for him every day until he comes. They missed that he had come and that he was there that that day of Passover when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But even the traditions of the Seder, even the traditions some of them don't think about, point to the Savior even as the tradition has a a woman bringing the light before the story of redemption comes forth. There's prophecies in the Jewish scriptures that that there would be a a seed of a woman, that the Redeemer would come through a a woman who would bring the light of the world. In Isaiah and various places, scripture says he would be born of a woman. He'd be born under the law to redeem us. All those things had to come about, and the New Testament gives more light on these images, but just look in chapter 12, verse 46, at, at one of these statements about the lamb. You shall not break any of its bones. And so go to John 19, and this is saying the lamb had to be unbroken and unblemished earlier in, in Exodus. John 19 is the day of the Passover. It's It's when Jews would retell the story and and recall these scriptures. And in the middle of that day, you know the story of the three men who were put on the cross. In verse 32, John 19, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Normally they would break his legs so that he would... He would die with his legs. He could still have strength to to catch breath. But once the legs were taken out, they would just asphyxiate and die more quickly. So they didn't break his legs like they normally would. Verse 36 says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. John sees through the Spirit of God that that happened that way. To fulfill even this detail of the Passover lamb, that his bones were not to be broken, not a single bone. And John 19, verse 35, ends saying that this is so that you will believe. You need to, John says at the beginning of the gospel, you need to behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's showing that in every way, Jesus is the lamb that was spoken of in Exodus. You need to believe him as, as the, the only way you can have your sins taken away, trusting in, in him as the lamb and as the Lord. And this is fulfilling what Exodus 12 said about the lamb. In fact, John nineteen twenty eight says before this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst a jar of full of sour wine stood there. So they took a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And right before he says it is finished, it mentions that they they held up this hyssop 
branch, which is also out of Exodus 12. The hyssop branch is what was used to, to lift up to the blood and to apply it to the, the wooden door frames and crossbeams of wood on the door of the house. And, and the Jews, even in David's day, understood that that became a symbol for, for our need for salvation. Purge me, he says, with hyssop. Cleanse me with, with hyssop. They were looking in faith to that one who would come and fulfill all of that. And Mark's gospel adds that at this moment, some of the Jews said, let's wait to see if Elijah comes. And I never really understood that as as a, a kid. Why are they waiting to see if Elijah comes? Because that was what they would do every Passover. They would say and they would wait to see if Elijah would come. This is on Passover and they're looking for him to come. But Jesus had explained earlier Elijah already had come. The the one, the spirit and power of Elijah that they missed was John the Baptist. He had come, but they're they're looking to see, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe Elijah is going to come and help him. And they would even, as they would do their seder, that that seder, their same day, they would leave an extra cup for Elijah in case he came. They would eat their bitter dirt, their herbs. They would drink wine that evening in a cup of salvation. But we see, and John is showing us that Jesus actually comes and he's drinking the bitter cup that's reserved for me. He's completely satisfying the Father's wrath so that his blood can wash away our sin. And on the cross, his, his blood, to those who look to him in faith, is applied to forgive them. To those who see he is the Lamb of God. John 19 says these things happen to fulfill that scripture of Exodus. And look at John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, in other words, by Gentile contact, but could eat the Passover. So they're concerned in this whole thing. They want to get rid of Jesus, but they also want to be clean enough to eat the Passover ceremonially. The Passover on this week was from Thursday sunset to Friday sunset. Jews don't count days midnight to midnight like we do. So the day would run from the night before until that night to come after twilight. Some would do their Passover Thursday night, which was part of that day. Others Friday afternoon. But they had to, the lamb had to be killed by twilight in the afternoon. And there was this custom at Passover, verse 39 says at Passover they had this custom of releasing someone. And is it going to be Jesus or Barabbas? And you, you know the story. The mob chooses Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. But Pilate says he's found nothing wrong with him. He's found no fault in Jesus. He is the unblemished lamb in every way that Exodus talked about. There was no fault, nothing wrong. You could examine him. There was nothing wrong with Jesus And Jesus literally then would die in the place of guilty Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty. He was a criminal. He was to be that guy on the middle cross with his two partners in crime. But Barabbas does not die on that cross as he should have deserved that day. Jesus dies literally in his place. And they changed the sign and put at the top. Instead of Barabbas, Jesus King of the Jews, but we see his innocent blood for the guilty, even in that detail. And in John 19, verse 14, 
It says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, that's noon, middle of the day. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Remember the Jews on Passover would pray, blessing the king of the universe. He's saying to them, here's your king. And he's saying it somewhat mockingly, but they cried out, verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Crucify him. They even said, we don't have any king except Caesar. Showing their apostasy because God was to be their king. But Jesus now is on the cross. And from the noon hour until three in the afternoon, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, he's on the cross and there is darkness that comes over the land. Remember how before the judgment came on Egypt, there was darkness that covered the entire land. Now, in the middle of the day, now there's utter darkness in the middle of the day. And anyone who had been thinking about Exodus and this whole story that they were telling again this time of year should have been concerned. In fact, some of the people as a result of these events said, truly this is the Son of God. Even some of the Gentiles would say that. But it would be at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus died. You know what Josephus, first century Jewish historian, tells us that when they would kill the Passover lambs, again, they had to do it before twilight, they would sacrifice the lambs at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. That's when they would kill the lambs. And they would extend that a little bit, but 3 p.m. was the hour when they would kill the lambs. And, and before that, there was preparations in the temple and in Jerusalem, all of that. All of those preparations are halted because of darkness coming over the land. And then right at 3 p.m., there's this massive earthquake, and it rocks their temple to the core. And God, in that temple where there's priests preparing Passover and doing all of this, or trying to, God comes and he tears that temple veil from top to bottom, and he opens up the holy place, and he turns upside down their rituals and tears it all apart to show that the hour has come. And he dies, Jesus dies that very hour that the lambs were were dying or should be dying Jesus cries out it is finished that that whole system all of the sacrifices all of that he's finished it he has fulfilled it and he dies at that very climactic hour and that hour where the priest would normally be killing the passover lambs all of that gets disrupted and Jesus is the slain lamb of god who takes away the sin not just for those jewish people but for the world who will believe in him. And those worldly Jews are being exposed in their false religion, and their priests are now going to become obsolete. Because Jesus is the true high priest. And he tears that temple veil from top to bottom. From, it's like heaven to earth coming down, opening it up, and showing that there is now access to the most holy God. And you don't need that system anymore. He's opening it up to, to show that Jesus, as he dies, that is the access to God now. He is your high priest now. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lord Jesus. Now, there's so much going on here. And it's interesting that since the first century, there's no lambs that are eaten in Passover meals anymore. Did you know that? And that's because in Jewish law, the lambs were only to be sacrificed, this is later Jewish law, they were to be sacrificed in one place, not just anywhere. It had to be on the temple 
Mount in Jerusalem. And that temple would be destroyed in the first century. That area is now Muslim-owned. As you know, the Dome of the Rock is where that would be. And so Passover is now, and since then, there's been no lamb. They have a little shank bone to remind them. But what do they eat instead? Well, a Jewish tradition developed that there would be these three pieces of unleavened matzah, and the middle piece would be in a cloth, and it would be hidden, and then it would be brought forth. And the rabbis taught that, that we would, while we're waiting for when we can really celebrate it rightly, we're going to take that middle piece, it's going to be broken and given, and we're going to eat that instead of what the law called us to. They would break the bread, they would share it with all. But even that tradition that developed... Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, talking about bread. He says, the bread that we break in communion, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so that that bread, actually Jesus says, this is about my body that's given for you, and it's Paul is bringing out that it, there's one that's broken into many to show the unity of the, of the one body of Christ. He is that sacrifice. He is that substitute. But there's even more in chapter 19, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Did you know that the way they prepare unleavened matzah, part of it, they pierce it and they stripe the bread as it's baked, which is interesting because one of their prophets, Isaiah, spoke of Messiah, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, we would be healed. And and Zechariah, at the end of the Old Testament, talks about how future Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to realize they actually pierced the Lord. And they will, will mourn, he says, as over a firstborn. And there's going to be a spirit of grace and mercy that will be on Jerusalem. And and all of that takes us back to Exodus 13, about the firstborn. So go to Exodus 13. But as you go, let me read when they would take that bread, and they still do this to this day. The script says this, behold this matzah. And to all who are in need, this is what the Passover Jews will say, we know your suffering. And we are anxious to help you in your need. To all who are hungry, we say, come and join us in our abundance. That sounds to me like the Jewish Savior inviting needy sinners to come, eat what is good, come to me, delight yourself in abundance, come to me that you may live. Jesus says to his church, I know about your suffering. He says in Revelation 2 and Hebrews 2. 4.15 says, we can come boldly to his throne of grace. We can always find help in time of need. Isn't that good news? Here's what Jesus said in John 6. And John 6 begins saying, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So the Passover was near. And at that time of unleavened bread, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me, he says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
To feed means to believe, to, to taste there is to trust. But he says it's not like the bread the fathers ate and died. This wasn't the physical bread. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But he says, I know there are some of you who do not believe. So even in the multitude of those listening to the word of the Lord, there are some who do not believe. And I know there are some here who do not believe. If you do not yet believe, you need to come to him. Come to him by faith. Turn from your sin. Trust him. Take him in. Take him in truly inside of you by faith. This Lord who fulfills all of those amazing details is the amazing Savior who offers his grace to you. I love how John Owen explained it. Taste that the Lord is gracious. And if we do not find a relish of it in our hearts, we shall not long retain the notion of it in our minds. Christ is the bread, the food for our souls. Nothing is in him of a higher spiritual nourishment than his love, which we should always desire. We sang earlier, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. That should be our prayer, that we would be satisfied in him as the bread, as the life. That takes us to the last point of our application in Exodus 13, our redemption and remembrance. Chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember, we read that part earlier, go down to verse 12. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. That's the the donkey's neck. If it's not redeemed by the Lamb, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets before your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so with animals, the firstborn was sacrificed. And remember, in Egypt, God took the firstborn humans of the Egyptians and anyone who didn't have the blood covering them the night before this teaching in chapter 13. But Israel's firstborn were redeemed, and and not just in Egypt. They were to continually go through this symbolically. To be redeemed means we've been bought back, we've been rescued For a donkey, and they had this before their eyes again, its neck would be broken unless unless there was a lamb given in its place to redeem. The life of a lamb could be given so that that donkey could live. Donkeys were unclean animals. You might not like being compared to a donkey, but the idea there is we are unclean as well, apart from grace. We The wages of sin is death for us as well. But God doesn't want the firstborn sons to die. And so the end of verse 13 says they can be redeemed just like at Passover. Remember the the, the blood of the lamb so that the firstborn were redeemed. 
But also remember Abraham, when he was, his son was, was to die, but he's trusting Jehovah Jireh to provide a lamb. And here in verse 2, God is calling his people to take their son's life and, and basically let it be consecrated to the Lord, to thee. Like we're going to sing here at the end. Take the life to let it be. In the end of verse 2, God says, a firstborn is mine. And you need to understand, the firstborn represented the family, and it represented the future. And to, to claim their, their mind really is, they're, they're the first representing the rest. And, but it's reminding parents from the start of be, becoming a parent, God owns my child. I don't ultimately own the, my children. God has lordship. God has ownership over everything. We need to remember this as, as parents as we first and foremost need to look to the Lord with our children. And the language of verse 12 is there to be holy. They're to be set apart to the Lord. That's for all God's children. That's not just one child, but he's representing the rest. That This is to set the tone for the rest of, of our family, that we want to be dedicated to the Lord. I think it's also like giving a, a first portion of our income back to the Lord, even though it's all His, but we're, we're giving back to what He has given us. He owns it all, but we, we want to give our first and our, our best. And so one writer says, this offering of the firstborn to God was the equivalent of the offering of any other first fruits later in Exodus, which seems to have underlain the offering of the tithe. And there were other gift offerings and free will offerings, but the whole is consecrated to God by the offering of the part. And so God calls his people to give offerings as their heart would move, he'll say later in Exodus, but we recognize he owns it all. It's not like he needs this. We need to depend on him. And the idea of redemption was there could be a price that could be paid to buy back, but it was part of a purification for newborns, and they would do this in the temple later. Once they had a temple, they would come and dedicate this child to God's glory. But again, this language in the New Testament is used of all of God's children. Paul says in the New Testament, think about this, you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You've been redeemed as God's child. You're dedicated to the Lord. Your body is not your own to do whatever you want with. You need to think about that. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How you use your body matters because God has redeemed you, body and soul. And God owns us. So Paul says in Romans 12, you need to offer your bodies as a living, what? Sacrifice. We're called to sacrifice, but it's not animals anymore. We're to offer ourselves, our own bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. We're to give not just a, a part of what He's given us, we're to give ourselves to him, to take my life and let it be, take my hands, take my voice, take my feet, take my lips, take my will, and to make it thine, no longer mine. We need to live ever, only, all for thee. And as we sing that a little bit later in the service, I, I pray you mean that and you make that a prayer of dedication and, and rededication to the Lord. But I want you to turn to Luke 2 for a great picture of this. 
in the temple. And, and remember, as Christians, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't gather here in, a, in the temple anymore. We gather wherever God's people gather. That's the church. We don't sacrifice animals, but we do need to sacrifice ourselves in serving Christ. We do need to dedicate, rededicate our lives, all that we are and have, not just our kids, but we give back to the Lord in the church, give of ourselves to others. I think one way to think about it is, is we need to hold what God puts in our hands loosely, whether it's most precious things like your children or anything else that he gives you, to hold those loosely and to, to not hold anything back from him. It's his family, financially, faithfully involving with his body, caring for one another, but we need to we need to end looking to Jesus and actually see how his family applied Exodus 13. We see this in Luke 2, verse 7. And it says, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, that's Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now skip down to verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And then it quotes our passage in Exodus 13. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice. So they they fulfill the law. They offer a sacrifice. And then look at verse 30 where Simeon comes and he takes this consecrated child. And he says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's speaking to God. This is, your, this is your salvation, that salvation that was pictured and promised in the Old Testament. This is your salvation right here, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for Israel, but not just for Israel. Remember the, the light, the, the Jews would light the candles at at Passover, but, but here he is the light of the world. He's the light for salvation for all. And that includes elderly widows like Anna in this text here, who the world did not always honor, but God honors here in verse 38, coming up at that very hour. She, this is Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Remember at Passover, it's a night of watching, waiting, and, and it's, uh, they're, they're looking for the redemption to come. That's the key word in Exodus 13, the redemption. But isn't this just marvelous how this all brings it together? Mary, did you know that this child you bring to redeem, that this child is going to redeem many, including you? Did you know you've just offered a sacrifice for the one who is going to be the end of all sacrifice, the, the, the lamb who would be sacrificed for our salvation, for our purification, for our redemption. I think she did know some of that because Simeon tells her that all the law was kept in Christ to fulfill all righteousness, the active and the passive righteousness and all the requirements so that God can present us or we can be presented to God in Christ. Titus 2.14 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify for himself a people for his very own. Look at Luke 2.41. 
Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up. So every year they went to Passover, and when he's 12, I think you know this story, the, the firstborn of Mary spent three extra days on that trip. It was a, quite a consternation for his mom, but he had to be about his father's house. And verse 46, at the end of it, says he was sitting among the teachers. And it says he was asking them questions. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the temple hearing Jesus interact with these rabbis. Gamaliel was likely there at that time. But Jesus, this little 12-year-old, takes on the role of Exodus 13, asking questions. But then it also says he's answering their questions. Look at verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They were amazed. They'd never heard anyone with the understanding of Passover like this. And the answers he was giving were better than the ones that they could give. They were amazed. He knew more about Passover than the rabbis. He inspired Exodus. And he's going to fulfill it. So go to chapter 22. And this week, Passover, as I said before, was Thursday evening to all day Friday. It was in that 24 hours that he would die And that Eve, before that, Luke 22, verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. In verse 14, this is the evening in the upper room, When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he says, I'm, I'm not going to eat this Passover with you again till the kingdom. And, and so the Lord's Supper, till he comes, is, there's going to be the, the Lamb's Supper. The wedding supper of the Lamb is still to come. But at this meal, verse 17, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Remember, there was more than one cup. This is the the cup, the first one he takes. And he took bread, verse 19. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Remember how they would break the bread and then they would give it to all of them. But he he goes off script here. And he, he says not just the script that they had been written out. He says now something that's not in their script. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He wants them to recall and retell in a different way from now on. Think about this as you take that bread in your hand. This is my body, which is given for you. He is the bread of life given for us. And then verse 20, this is the cup after supper. This will be the last cup, the third or maybe the fourth. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord is the fulfillment of all of these things. And as he gives them, he's instituting the Lord's table here. These are some of the things we're to think about. Are we recalling? Are we retelling? Are we telling others the story? Are we consecrating? Are we dedicating ourselves and our children and all that we are to the Lord? 
I want us to think about these, te- these things as we go to prayer and prepare our hearts for communion. We pray and we say, Father, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. We thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only Son to redeem us and to rise again as the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything Christ might have the supremacy. We praise him as the firstborn among many brethren of believers, all part of the church of the firstborn. We pray that you would help our lives, help me, help us to be more consecrated, more holy, to be more faithful in our families and in the things that you give us, that we would give sacrificially to your work and in service, that you would help us to be set apart as parents and as people of God. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ, our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. Amen.